John chapter 4, verses 43 to 54. This is God's word. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus, came to, so Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This is God's word. A key theme of this passage today is of genuine faith, namely in light of who Jesus is and how we are to respond to him. So this is revealing genuine faith. And if you have genuine faith, then I would say a, a core component of, of that is that you have an ability to take that person at their word. So if I asked one of you later on this evening to pack up all of these chairs, um, remove the barricades that I set up and, and get everything else uh, schmick as it should be in the library, and I said, so-and-so, can you do this for me? And I trust you. I trust you to do it. I'm so thankful that you're someone that I can trust. And then as you're doing it, I'm lurking over your shoulder, just watching everything that you're doing and saying, oh, that goes there. No, 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 this one goes there. By the way, remember that I trust you. I, you know, you have my full support. That one goes over there. It, clearly, it wouldn't actually demonstrate that I trust that person, right? If I trust you, I would ask you, you would be a good congregation member and say yes, and I would know that it is as good as done. I would leave here and know that it is done. I wouldn't have to watch you. I would just take you at your word. This story here is revealing this kind of faith that we are required as those who trust in Jesus, remembering that faith and trust are the same word. For those who trust in Jesus, we take him at his word. We have a genuine faith that trusts that whatever Jesus says is right and good and it will come to pass. That's what this narrative is revealing. And actually, Jesus is challenging this royal official here and the Galileans, actually challenging them by giving them an opportunity to demonstrate this kind of faith, challenging them to reveal what faith is required to come to him. So after the events of Samaria, remember we went over this, Tobias preached through them the last three weeks, Jesus' encounter with a Samaritan woman. We finish the, uh, that section where Jesus is in the Samaritan's town for a couple of days 
And we finish with seeing that they actually believe in him. They believe in his word. Uh, not only that, they end up professing that he is the savior of the world based off what Jesus has said. And now from verse 43, we come to uh, John, the author, describing what happens next. Jesus and his disciples head off for Galilee. Remembering that's north of Samaria. Galilee still had a predominantly Jewish culture, maybe not a refined Judaism that the Jews from Jerusalem would think, but there was still an, an ethnically Jewish population, much more so than Samaria, um, than the Samaritan population. And Jesus heads into here, remembering that's where he was born, Nazareth, part of, um, well, grew up Bethlehem in Judea, but then eventually grew up in Nazareth in Galilee. He heads back here and we read, he heads back into Galilee and then from verse 44, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Verse 45, so or therefore, when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Now, initially, this seems a bit confusing. You get from the flow of what Jesus uh, testifies to that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown, it would make more sense if he goes into Galilee and they just rebuke him. Like actually in the synoptic gospels, whenever this uh, proverb is used, we see much clearer opposition to Jesus. But here we read that the Galileans welcome him. It doesn't say that they bow down before him and, and revere him, but it certainly doesn't communicate dishonor. So what's, what's going on here? This uh, verse, verse 44, actually creates a lot of controversy amongst Bible commentators, a lot of exegetical gymnastics going on to try and work out how to actually make sense of this passage. So what does Jesus mean by saying that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown? But then why does John, the, the writer, say, therefore... When he went to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. And why does he tie the welcome specifically to those who had seen all that he did in Jerusalem at the feast? See, that's, that's the connection to, make, uh, to, to help us understand this welcome and the fact that it's not an honorable welcome. Looking a bit further ahead, verse 48 is one of the key verses of this where it's quite a rebuke to the people. Um, it's actually in the plural in verse 48. So think of unless yous or unless y'all see signs and wonders, you all will not believe. That's a key focus of this narrative here. Faith cannot rest upon signs and wonders. So if we go back to verses 43 and verse, uh, verses 43 to 45, the connection here is those who saw what Jesus did at the feast. Remembering that the last time we hear of that is in the end of chapter 2, where Jesus cleanses out the temple. And then in the end of uh, chapter 2, John records that many believed in his name. This is verses 23 to 25 of chapter 2, when they saw the signs that Jesus was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. It's basically saying many trusted in Jesus, but Jesus didn't entrust himself to them. Why? Because Jesus knew all people and needed no one to bear witness to them about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So these people who saw what Jesus did at the feast, they have a particular trust in Jesus that is based on the signs that they saw, but Jesus does not entrust himself to them because he knows it is a fickle 
faith. He knows what is in the heart of men. He knows that it's not a genuine faith. It doesn't take anything miraculous for someone to see the signs that Jesus was doing. And there were probably a lot more than we have recorded here. Clearly, John makes that point later on in his gospel. It doesn't take anything miraculous for someone to see all of these incredible signs and say, boy, I'll follow that guy. I might get some benefit out of this. This is going to be wonderful. The natural heart loves to see signs and wonders. So the welcome that the Galileans give him here, if we come back to the first three verses of our passage today, the welcome, John seems to want us to remember that it's very similar to the kind of uh, approach that people had to Jesus after the feast where Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in their heart. It is a welcome that is connected with signs and wonders which does not necessarily produce a genuine faith that actually honors Jesus as Messiah. It is more interested in what, in what he can do rather than both what he can do, but also who he is, namely the Messiah, the savior of the world. So it's merely a faith that sees something appealing about a man who can perform great miracles. And just a quick application for our day. Likewise, there are many uh, people who trust in Jesus is someone who is going to give them all of their materialistic desires, who is going to give them that bigger house, that better job. This is like the cosmic genie Jesus, where you rub his belly and you get the blessing that you want. And this is not a faith that actually honors Christ, though he does give good things to us. It's not a faith that honors Christ because you're trusting more in the gifts rather than the giver of the gifts. And that is not an honorable thing to come to the Lord. So Jesus recognizes the fickle faith of these people. And he is about to challenge them in order to reveal genuine faith. So we know this, this is clearly connected because John begins verse 46. If we move into the story about the royal official, with a therefore. So the word so here, obviously it's, it's, a, it's a word that can be translated as so or therefore or because. So therefore, so John says, um, Jesus said that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. The Galileans welcome of him is not actually an honorable one because it's based off of signs and wonders. Therefore, Jesus came again to Cana in Galilee. Remembering this is where he performed his first sign. So Jesus comes back to the place where he turned the water into wine, revealing his glory. He comes back to that same place because there is something further that he needs to reveal about who he is to some of these very same people, possibly. He is revealing more about who he is and how people are therefore to come to him. And the people here of Galilee are completely missing the signs that Jesus is giving if they see him as simply someone who can perform miraculous signs rather than the Messiah who has the words of life. Remember, this comes right off the back of Jesus' encounter with the Samaritans, where in verse 41 and 42 of chapter 4, we read that many believe because of his word. And they then said to the woman, that is the Samaritans, it's no longer because of what you said, woman at the well. It's actually because we've heard what Jesus has said. And what's their conclusion? We know that this is indeed the savior of the world. 
He's the Messiah. That's the point they're meant to get to. Not just this is some magician type figure or even some great uh, man sent from God who can perform wonderful signs. The, the point they're meant to get to is that he is the Savior. He's the Messiah. That's what Jesus wants to bring out. So this narrative here is to reveal who Jesus truly is and how we come to him in faith. So let's look at this story here from verse 47. We read that this man, this royal official, uh, someone who is a Jew, uh, likely someone who serves under King Herod, someone very prominent, a Jewish official. And he comes, he hears that Jesus is in town. Uh, He leaves from Capernaum uh, to try and head toward Cana where Jesus is. And he asks Jesus, he begs him to heal his son. He actually says, please come to my house so that you can heal my son who is on death's door. And then we get to verse 48, Jesus's response, which I mentioned earlier. Again, remembering this is in the plural. So Jesus addresses the royal official, but then it's in the plural. So it's meant to be actually for all of those around, the Galileans as well. He says, unless you... You all see signs and wonders you will not believe. Now, make no mistake about this. This is a rebuke. This is quite a strong rebuke to the people. It's emphatic. So it's like Jesus saying, unless you see signs and wonders, and then there's a a double negative to really stress that this is a, a rebuke and he's emphasizing something. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will never believe. He's actually addressing that there's something wrong about their approach. He's alluding to the fact that a faith that is purely based on signs and wonders is fickle and unstable. Now, let's just uh, be clear that signs and wonders are not inherently bad. So we know that, for example, in Acts 2.22, the the apostles um, recognize that actually God performs signs and wonders through Jesus to obviously attest that he is a man sent from God. We remember that the apostles actually performed signs and wonders. They prayed that God would manifest his glory through signs and wonders uh, to reveal his majesty, to reveal his power. So signs and wonders aren't necessarily bad, but we also remember on top of this passage here, Jesus addressing the religious leaders very clearly rebuking them when they come to ask for a sign. And he says, a wicked and perverse generation seeks after a sign or a wicked and adulterous generation seek after a sign. So to the question of whether signs and wonders are good or bad, it depends. They can be good. Perhaps if your faith is resting on signs and wonders, then I think this passage is undeniably saying that this is not good. If your faith rests on signs and wonders, that is not good. On the other hand, miraculous signs from a miraculous God may be used to lead someone to a robust and solid faith in Jesus Christ as the sole treasure of life and existence, so much so that if they never saw a sign again, their faith would not be rocked because it is in the Christ who has saved them rather than the sign. Genuine faith is meant to lead us to a point where we are not tossed about by our circumstances. Genuine faith is meant to lead us to a point where we are not tossed about by our circumstances. And the problem with those who seek after signs and wonders is that their faith is inevitably circumstantial. 
It's, it's, it's shaky. It's going to change. They need something miraculous for their faith to be strong. They need another hit of a sign or a wonder to feel secure in their beliefs. It's very similar to what I think is the dominant culture within the church in our area as those who've been influenced by the sort of secular false gospel of human flourishing, that your life as a follower of Jesus is really all about you living your best life now. Flourishing, living a great life, having a great uh, family, great job, holidays, all of these sorts of things. And Jesus is going to be the one to bring that about. And if you've been influenced by this, then you always need to be in a situation where you feel like you are thriving for your faith to be secure. So if you lose a job or a spouse, your faith is completely shattered. Now, it's not like that you're not going to go through grief in those times, but that ought not to rock our faith about because genuine faith is meant to lead us to a place where our stability is always determined by Christ and not circumstances where we trust in the objective truth that God is for us, regardless of our circumstances, so that whether we are staring down bankruptcy, broken marriages, terminal illness, whatever it may be, our faith is rock solid because it was never in our circumstances. It was never in a better life here. It was in Christ. It was in our Savior, so that whether we have much or little, hungry or full, we can do all things through him who strengthens us. That's where our faith lies in Christ, not in our circumstances. So one of the focus points of this narrative here is Jesus clearly revealing what genuine faith is. And he is saying that it is not a faith that relies upon signs and wonders. That's not a genuine faith. Maybe you are on the pathway to it, but that's not a genuine faith if that's where it ends. A faith that is truly in Christ, rests solely in Him as Messiah, like the Samaritans were brought to. And Jesus is using this event here for both the royal official and the Galileans to actually test their faith, to challenge them, to give them an opportunity to demonstrate what genuine faith is. So this desperate father, and think of his situation. I mean, his son is on death's door. His son is going to die. He's desperate. He sniffs out a possibility of some form of healing. So he comes to Jesus so that he may heal his son. And then get this, here's Jesus' response. Firstly, it's unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. So it's quite a rebuke to him. The desperate father doesn't give up. The desperate father comes again in verse 49 and says, Sir, come down before my child dies. And what's Jesus' response to the father asking Jesus to come? Jesus' response is uh, almost a bit of the opposite. He tells the father to go. I'm not going to come to your house. You go. Your son will live. He actually commands the father. It's in the imperative. He says, go. You go. I'm going to stay right here. It's challenging the father to actually demonstrate. Almost Jesus is bringing out of him a genuine faith. Now, you may be thinking of another story very similar to this. That is one of the centurion, which we have in Matthew and Luke's account in Matthew 8 and Luke 7, I believe. This is where a centurion, which was a Roman soldier, comes uh, to Jesus or he sends uh, messengers to Jesus. 
because he has a paralyzed uh, servant and he wants him to be healed. Now, let me be very clear. These are two different stories. Though there's similarities, these are two different stories. So in the account of the centurion, who is also from Capernaum, the centurion, who was the Roman soldier, he comes to Jesus explaining that his servant is in dire need of healing. But then there is a difference because in that account where the Roman soldier comes, Jesus actually immediately goes. He starts to go to the house. He says, I will come. Whereas with the royal official in our account, Jesus doesn't go. He sends the father away. Now, the royal official in John's gospel begs twice for Jesus to come. He really wants him to come to the house. The centurion, on the other hand, as soon as Jesus says he's going to come, the centurion says, don't come to my house. I'm not worthy to have you under my roof. Don't come. Messiah, just say the word and he'll be healed. I know it. Just say the word and he'll be healed. That's it. Don't, don't trouble yourself to come to my house. The the centurion knows the word of Jesus is powerful enough to give life, regardless of physical proximity. He doesn't even have to be there. So the centurion has a true ability to take Jesus at his word. And it's as though this royal official here in our account, it's as though Jesus is trying to bring this out of him, a genuine faith to take Jesus at his word. So that's why Jesus' response when he asks him to come to the house is to say, no, you go, you go to the house. I'll heal him. I don't need to physically be there. You just go. So it may have seemingly started off from this royal official as maybe he came because he had seen Jesus performing great signs and wonders. But it seems like there is a genuine faith that is actually present in this royal official because see what happens in verse 50. After Jesus tells him to go, we read that the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Jesus says, go, the man goes. The man doesn't see a sign or wonder. He doesn't know whether his son is actually healed. He doesn't get to see that. He just hears the word of Jesus and he believes. So we see that underneath this initial fickle faith is actually a genuine trust in the word of Jesus, an ability to take him at his word. And this is part of what Jesus desires to reveal to those in Cana. This is part of his point to bring out what a genuine faith is, an ability to take Jesus at his word. This is why he heads back to the place where he performed his first sign where he revealed his glory and now he heads back there and he is revealing what the right response is to him as Messiah. The right response is to trust in him and his word, to trust that he is the word of God. Now let's draw out a few principles here from what we see in this passage about genuine faith that we ought to have in response to Jesus as the Messiah. Number one, there is a necessary connection between obedience, between our obedience and the word of Christ. There is a necessary connection between our obedience 
and the word of Christ. So in verse 50, Jesus commands the father to go. And the father's response is one of obedience. This is actually what reveals his genuine faith. The fact that he goes, he takes Jesus at his word. Jesus challenges the father's faith by actually denying his request. He doesn't go, that is Jesus doesn't go. Instead, he sends the father on his way. And the father's faith is now put to the test by actually having to do what is counterintuitive. Think about what you would do in that moment if you have a dying child or a dying relative and you know there is someone there who can heal your child. And he says, I'm not going to go. You just go. It'll be done. Think about in that desperate moment, you would want him to be there. Just physically come and do what you need to do. It's counterintuitive to actually then say, well, I guess I'll take you at your word and I'll go back to my dying son. If this doesn't happen, he doesn't have much longer to live. That's a genuine faith that takes Jesus at his word. And for those of us who genuinely desire to follow Jesus, to trust in him, there ought to be an unbreakable connection between our obedience and the word of Christ an unbreakable connection. And this will especially be the case in counterintuitive moments. So like when you're in the workplace and it seems highly likely that you will lose your job if you are very clear on being a follower of Jesus, it seems counterintuitive to actually be not unnecessarily open, like you don't need to make a banner over your workstation or something like that, but at least open and clear in being a follower of Jesus and trusting in the Christ, knowing that this will likely lose your job, but you are obedient to the command to not deny Christ before men. You are obedient to the word of Christ. You do what is seemingly counterintuitive in trusting in Jesus Christ. And there are plenty of people who try and play fast and loose with obedience to Christ to kind of suggest, well, Jesus will know in my heart that I actually am worshiping him, but I'm just gonna keep my job uh, because that's the wise thing to do. And I don't think that that demonstrates an actual trust to take Jesus at his word when he says, do not deny me before men and to be witnesses. Or when you are waiting, when you are waiting for that new job or that spouse or that child and you are led to much worrying about the future, which from a natural sense is totally understandable, sometimes you have a desire to even manufacture the outcome through ungodly means because you're sick of waiting. And what is counterintuitive, but what is required of us in obedience is to take Jesus at his word when he says, do not worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about it. My father provides. He provides for the birds of the sky and the flowers of the field. How much more is he going to provide for you? Take Jesus at his word. And it may seem counterintuitive at times. Most certainly will seem counterintuitive at times. But genuine faith will keep a strong connection between our obedience and the word of Christ. We trust that God is for us. Our faith is in Christ, not in our circumstances. The second principle, seeing God's faith. Uh, that didn't sound right. Seeing God's provision strengthens our faith. 
Seeing God's provision strengthens our faith. So we've already seen that Jesus reveals genuine faith by testing the faith, but lest we think solely of God as someone who simply tests our faith like a cruel taskmaster, always taking things away from us, always putting us in difficult circumstances to grow our faith, though he will do that, lest we only think of that, we should remember that what we see in this passage is that God is actually pleased to strengthen our faith through provision. I mean, he heals the son. That's part of the miracle. He heals the son. It says here uh, the son recovers later on in the passage, but it actually just literally says he lives. I think recovery kind of softens it, but actually the, the, the servants who come to the royal officials say, your son lives. He's alive. They were expecting him to be dead. He is alive. That's the miracle. And we see in verse 50 that before any of this happens, the father believes the word of Jesus. But then notice in verse 52 and 53, when the servants come and they realize that, wow, the hour that the son began to live again, in that sense of not dying, was the very hour that Jesus said, your son will live. And then we read, and he himself, that is the royal official, believed and all his household. So it's like the royal official already believes and then he believes again. Not because he went into unbelief, but because he believed and then that belief was strengthened as he saw the provision of his God. God is pleased to strengthen our faith as he mercifully gives to us, as he provides. So we must not have our faith resting on signs and wonders or certainly upon gifts over the giver of gifts, but we must also not forget that God delights in giving good gifts to his children. He loves to give good gifts to his children. We in more of a reformed tradition can sometimes uh, be misguided into thinking of God as sort of an emotionless uh, God who doesn't actually enjoy giving for his children. But God actually delights in answering our prayers for provision, especially when we pray for them, because when he answers them, he receives all of the glory. He is pleased to give. And so as we see his generous hands stretch down and provide that new job or that child or that home, then we are reminded that he is good. So genuine faith is not a faith which believes that God only withholds from us. It is a faith which believes that God abundantly provides far more than we can imagine. And whether he does this through withholding or through giving, we see it all as his provision. Whether God withholds, whether he provides, it is all his generous provision. He is a sovereign God who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And as we rightly see that provision, our faith is strengthened. Thirdly, and finally, before a few questions to reflect upon, the word of Christ brings life. This is part of the focus point of this passage. So along with one of the focus points of Jesus revealing what genuine faith is, Part of the point of this sign here is to see that transformed life comes through the word of Christ. Transformed life comes through the word of Christ. Jesus simply speaks and the son is healed. Regardless of physical proximity, Jesus speaks 
life comes to this son who is on death's door. The word of Christ is not bound by any physical location. It is a spiritual word which cuts through heart and soul, joint and marrow. It is a spiritual word which is not bound by anything physical. And I believe that this event here is actually a tangible picture. This story is a tangible picture of how people are actually brought to faith in Christ. Because how is it that spiritually dead people come alive to know Christ? In simple terms, it is because the word of Christ speaks and dead bodies are brought to life. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. We see this in part here, I think, in a uh, major way. We will see it in John 11, where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead and he's stone cold dead. He's not like the son who's just about to die. He's stone cold dead. And Jesus comes and he says, Lazarus, come forth. All of a sudden, life comes. Jesus speaks, life comes. And this is all part of the building blocks that John is putting together for us to see that these signs are pointing to the fact that Jesus has the words of life. This is the conclusion that the disciples come to when Jesus says, are you also going to go away? And, and, Jesus, and they say to Jesus, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. You have life and life abundantly. We're not going anywhere. Life is in you. As Jesus speaks, life comes. We actually see that both physically and spiritually here. Physically, we see it because the son is spared from death. It's as if new life comes to him. Spiritually, we see it because the father hears the word of Christ and believes. Jesus will go on to say in the next chapter, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. That's where life comes. We hear the word of Christ, we believe it, and life comes. Matthew Henry says on this passage, experiencing the power of one word of Christ is enough to settle the authority of Christ in every heart. Just experiencing the power of one word of Christ is enough to settle the authority, the complete dominion, the complete sovereignty of Christ in every heart. Have you experienced the power of the word of Christ in your life? It is enough to settle the fact that Jesus is Lord, God is sovereign. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. And we experience that as we come to know him through his life-giving word. Now, let me just finish with two quick questions before we take the Lord's Supper together. This is to help us examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith as Paul talks about. So first question, is there an obedience to God's word that is present in your life. Could your life, as you reflect upon it, be described by a genuine obedience to God's word, even when it is counterintuitive? Or are you someone who tries to justify disobedience when situations are counterintuitive to try and bring about some good through ungodly means? Could your life be described by a genuine obedience to God's word, even when it is counterintuitive. See, it's easy, for example, for a lot of uh, young men to gather in a church environment where there's plenty of other young girls there. It's very easy to do that. 
I think God has actually blessed the, the men here in our church by actually giving them an opportunity to demonstrate where your heart really lies. It's very easy for young guys to start bouncing around from church to church to try and find some partner because they're not really in it to worship Christ. They just want to find a spouse. And so they start bouncing around. Or it's easy to obey God's word when it costs nothing, when it's convenient to do so. It's really easy to do that. It's much harder when it will cost you your job, your reputation, when it will cost you time, when you are already time poor. Sometimes it seems counterintuitive when you're struggling for time to then take more time out of your schedule to go and pray with other brothers and sisters. But that is precisely what God's word calls us to. So is your life characterized by an obedience to God's word, especially when it is counterintuitive. Secondly, is your faith in need of strengthening? Do you feel like you have weak faith? Though we can have faith as small as a mustard seed, the point isn't how strong it is as much as it is the object of where our faith is in, who our faith is in. But nevertheless, sometimes we feel weak in faith and our faith can be strengthened like we see in this passage. The royal official believes and then it stresses again that he believes after he sees. So we can often forget ways in which God has provided us. I think our tendency in this culture is one of forgetful entitlement rather than contemplative gratitude. We most often go to forgetful entitlement, which leads us to bitterness, rather than contemplative gratitude, which leads us to a full heart. And a perfect example of this, and I would encourage you to read through this at some stage this week, in Psalm 77, we have this beautiful model of how to actually strengthen our faith through contemplative gratitude. In Psalm 77, the beginning of the Psalm is basically the Psalmist just complaining about how terrible things are going. And there's bitterness. He's complaining why he's hard done by. And then there is this pivot in verse 10. There's this pivot that shifts the focus of the psalm. When in verse 10, he says, then I said, so after all of my complaining, he thought, hang on, hang on. Then, then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder or reflect all your work and meditate upon your mighty deeds. That's how to get yourself out of a rut. Hang on, I'm going to remember how good the Lord is. I'm going to be intentional about remembering how good the Lord is. And it's not like we don't have examples of how God has richly provided for us. It's just that we forget because we are entitled and we forget about these things. We forget about the fact that we have a roof over our head. We have access to food and water. We have brothers and sisters in this community who love to pray and read God's word together, who love to gather. We have complete forgiveness, reconciliation, and fatherly approval from the God of heaven and earth. So if your faith is in need of strengthening, then might I suggest meditation upon how God has provided for you. Say this, hang on, to this I will appeal. The days when the Most High stretched out his right hand, all of his goodness, the fact that he is good, he has provided. And as we reflect upon ways in which God has provided for us, then we are reminded of why he is absolutely and without a doubt trustworthy and this is precisely why we take him at his word. If he 
did not withhold his own son, but freely gave him up for us, then of course we will take him at his word. We will trust in him regardless of our circumstances. Speaking of being strengthened in our faith, that's a very helpful segue to head into our time of the Lord's Supper as we prepare our hearts for this. The Lord's Supper is, is here clearly for those who are following Jesus, who have turned away from their sin and are following Jesus Christ. And it is here to actually strengthen us. It is here to strengthen us in our faith. This is why we come to the bread and the cup. Now, if you think about this passage in light of the Lord's Supper, in this passage, we see a father who is coming as a desperate beggar. See, the royal official in this passage has tremendous status, much more than Jesus would have had at that time. He has status. He has importance. He's a person of the king. He's very high up. And he does not impose any of that upon the Messiah. He knows that's foolish. He knows that everyone who must come to the Messiah comes as a desperate beggar regardless of how high they possibly are. Likewise, when we come to the Lord's table, we come as desperate beggars. We come as sinners in need of grace, in need of strength. As we recognize our sin before a holy God, and as we recognize that that sin has then been nailed to the cross, as we take the bread and the cup, then we are strengthened. We are strengthened as we come as weak, desperate beggars to the table. We are strengthened in our faith. We remember that because God did not withhold his own son, because he provided a sacrificial substitute, because he provided the saviour of the world to die in our place, then as we weakly come as weak individuals collectively coming together, we know that he is going to continue the work he began in us. We know that we will be strengthened as we come to the bread and the juice. This is a meal for those who are weak. This is a meal for those who come as desperate beggars. But the beautiful thing about that is as much as that is true, we come as desperate beggars. We also come as God's beloved children. We come because that sin has been dealt with. The sin has been nailed to the cross. The Father looks upon us who are in Christ as those who are not only forgiven, but those who have done everything right because the life that we now have is not ours. The life that we have is Christ's. We receive his perfect record. So we come as both desperate, weak people bringing no status to this. And yet we approach the table as children, as sons, not slaves, as adopted children rather than orphans. And this strengthens us. So if you're feeling weak in faith, what a beautiful moment to come to the Lord's table again, to realize that as much of a desperate, wretched beggar as you are, the, the entrance point to the table isn't because you become a better, more qualified more spiritual person, it's because Christ has stood in your place. It's because you have come before Christ as a desperate beggar and you who are humble have been exalted 
to the place of co-heir with Jesus Christ. And we take this every week, longing for the day that we will feast upon this in the new heavens and new earth, when God completely restores all things, where we will be in his presence forever and ever.